I have about 25 years of experience teaching stewardship and money management. I have training as an attorney. I have a graduate certificate in personal financial planning, and I've just passed a certification to be a senior financial advisor. But none of that stuff matters unless you know God and you're in partnership with him because the whole business could implode very easily. But remember that God is the owner of everything. And if you're in covenant relation with him, you can count on him to take care of you in your everyday life, just like you count on him to take care of you in your eternal life. Do you believe that's true? There's nothing impossible with God. He says you're going to bless you, he will bless you. And I believe that's true. So what we're going to, that's why this particular topic, just like when I teach the seminar on getting out of debt, as I showed you the last time we were here, just the first four principles. First thing, establish the tithe, moratorium on debt, you understand, make a covenant with God, list your debts, those kind of things. But what we're going to talk about this time are the biblical principles of giving. And I want to, I'm going to go really fast because when I get through, I want to have you guys ask me any question you could ever think of on tithe. For, I'll just spin that a little bit for you. Isn't it true that Ellen White gave some of her tithe to independent ministries? Yes. Have you ever heard that? Yes. You've heard it, but it is not true. Now you can tell me, and I, I'm an attorney, I will give you citations, chapter and verse, the place you can find the answers to these things. So just so you'll know that, it's important to know. Okay, what we're going to do is, why do we give? First of all, these, this is an offering situation. We give to glorify God as our creator, to uh, integrate God into the material side of our life, and to show thanks for God's grace and blessings. Those are just kind of things that you see. All of this is in the book. We're going to talk about tithing first. And this tithe is a tenth part of our income or our increase if we're self-employed. This is the first part of our God-given increase that he claims as his own. By the way, what happens to the 90%? Who owns it? God still owns it. He just lets us manage just that part. Really interesting. And the word for tithe and tenth are used interchangeably in both the Old and New Testaments. For example, if you were to look at the case of Abraham and Melchizedek, I think I may have this. The first mention of tithe in the Bible is Genesis 14:20, where Abraham gave Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, a tithe of all the spoils of Sodom, which were given to him by the king of Sodom. Now, this is very, very interesting. This was long before there was a Jew or the children of Israel. Does everybody understand that? Now, this is amazing because the last mention, some of you uh, understand because of your academic types, the first mention of something in the Bible and the last mention of something in the Bible are both very significant. And the last mention of tithing in the Bible is in Hebrews chapter 7, the first uh, 10 verses. And it's the recounting story of Abraham and his encounter with Melchizedek. In this account, we're told that Abraham, the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Now remember that this is, this is very, very interesting to me because in the Old Testament it says it gave him a tithe of all. Here it says it gave him a tenth. Same words, just used interchangeably. Now another real interesting thing is this is the chapter about Christ after the order of Melchizedek. Do you understand? Now, this is interesting because the first mention and the last mention of tithe have nothing to do with Israel and the Old Testament Judaic system. They're both Melchizedek and the last Melchizedek. So you understand tithing is still valuable today. That's what I wanted you to see from that. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question right now. Does anybody know what the real purpose of GYC is? Why did you come? To learn about how to be more effective as a Christian and to be inspired, right? 
Well, I'm going to tell you something. This is like a planning session. I looked in the schedule. It looks like Sabbath afternoon. Some of you are going to actually do some witnessing or go out and make contacts with people. I know it's happened before. So I'm going to just give you a little illustration. I go to lots of workers' meetings, like pastors and teachers' meetings and so on. Kathy and I were just asked to go to the Trans-European Division last year in the Netherlands where all of the ministers for all of the Trans-European Division were together, and we had sessions with them about pastors' personal finance and church finance and so on. Now, here's the big question. You understand that we have workers' meetings, but you understand that we're part of the great controversy. You understand that the forces of good and evil? Do you think the devil also has workers' meetings? Have you ever thought about it? He actually does. And one of the most unique experiences that Ellen White ever had was to actually see one of the devil's workers' meetings, and she got to hear what he said to his imps. Isn't that incredible? Now, you may not be aware of this, but I'm going to show it to you. It's in Testimonies to Ministers, 474, and I will actually show it to you. Now, we have what we call the great controversy theme as part of basic Adventism, just like the three angels' messages. Isn't it true? We understand. We understand what's going on in the world and so on. So I'm going to show you this so you can understand. This is in quotations because Ellen White is quoting Satan. And here's what she heard him say. Go make the possessors of lands and money drunk with the cares of this life. Present the world before them in its most attractive light that they may lay up their treasure here and fix their affections upon earthly things. Now we're going to stop there and I'm going to ask you, do you think the devil has been successful at this? It's really, there's no question about it. I mean, it's just incredible. Then, the devil's still speaking. We must do our utmost to prevent those who labor in God's cause from obtaining means to use against us. Keep the money in our own ranks. The more means they obtain, the more they will injure our kingdom by taking from us our subjects. Make them care more for money than for the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom and the spread of the truths we hate. And we need not fear their influence. Now, you know, I underline in bold and italic stuff. Look what I've underlined here. The devil says, for we know that every selfish, covetous person will fall under our power and will finally be separated from God's people. That is incredible. Now, he's had 6,000 years experience, you understand. He understands if he can get you hooked on money, he's got you. It's very, really, really quite incredible. So we're going to talk about a little bit more here. Tithing, then, is a hedge against selfishness. God does not need the money. He's doing it for our benefit, and it's hard for people to understand that. We talked a little bit about Abraham, but I want to talk to you about this experience right here. So we're going to go to, many of you have your Bibles. Let's go to Genesis chapter 28, and you'll see an amazing story there. What I want you to understand from this story is that God can do whatever he says he can do. And so you're going to see it here in Genesis chapter 28. Now, by the way, we've already had the experience in the Bible about, uh, and I've told you about it, I just briefly mentioned in the last session, about Lot going into Sodom. You remember that? Lot went into Sodom a very wealthy man. Is it true in the Bible that he was very wealthy when he went there? There's no question about it. You can read about it in Genesis, the 13th chapter. Now, I'm going to tell you, he came out with absolutely nothing. Jacob, on the other hand, left home with nothing but a walking stick, and he came back a very wealthy man. Now, this is incredible. 
So you're going to see why he was able to do that in Genesis chapter 28. Now remember, he was an unmarried young man when he left home. And to me, this is an interesting story. I won't, I'll just only briefly tell you in my own words instead of reading it all from the Bible. But you remember that Jacob and Esau were twins. But by the virtual nature of physiology, one is always born before the other one, even if it's only a few minutes. So that guy's the firstborn, you understand. But God had told Rebecca, Jacob's mother, that the younger, the older would serve the younger. You remember how that happened. And what do we know that's quite unusual about Esau? The most unusual thing we know is he's a hairy man. This is amazing, really. It really is. I just love these Bible stories. When you get through the Bible stories, they're just amazing. So I'm going to tell you just briefly this one. Rebecca came to Jacob and she says, we've got to hurry. Your father has just promised your older brother Esau the birthright, the inheritance. And he's gone out to fix it. And if you don't get there before he does, you will miss the birthright. And then Jacob said, but most of your friends and you guys know this. When someone that you know calls you, they don't typically say, hi, this is Ed. They just start talking because you know their voice. By the way, when... Uh, uh, any of the infamous characters like the uh, people that send out recordings and so on, they, they can track to see if it's that person because they can compare their voice transcription you know, on oscilloscope with, the, with anything else they know is true and they can say, is this legitimate or not? So at any rate, Jacob says to his mother, but I can't talk like my brother. He'll know it's me. She said, do the best you can. So Jacob's second thing is, he's old and blind now, and so if I try to disguise my voice, he will ask to feel my arm. And I, my brother is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. So she said, not the word, I've thought about that too. I'll put some of the goat skin on your arm. So when he goes into his father, this is really amazing. He's, remember this, I want you to remember this. He's old and blind. So he says, Father, I have prepared the meal that you asked for. He says, Esau, is that you? You sound like Jacob. Oh, it's me, all right. You know, he tries to change his voice. And he says, come over here. I want to feel you. So he gives him the arm that has the goat skin on it. And he says, you're Esau, all right. He was as hairy as a goat. Isn't that amazing? This is really an interesting story. The goat skin, not the voice, the goat skin is what deceived his father. At any rate, he got the blessing, and then shortly after he left, it wasn't long at all, Esau came back, ready for the blessing. And you know that Isaac wailed, I've already given it to your brother. Now I'm going to ask you, do you think people today still argue about inheritance money? People kill one another over this. I'm serious. Or break up families for the rest of their life. It's just interesting. So Esau said, my father is old and blind, and he will die soon. And remember in the Old Testament, you cried for somebody for 30 days. When the days of mourning are past, I will kill my brother. He meant it. So they came to Jacob and they, his parents and said, you're going to have to leave home. Your brother will kill you as soon as your father dies. So he said, go back to where your mother's from and find a wife there. And, you know, someday you might be able to come back. I like reading the Bible with the spirit of prophecy. Ellen White says that when Jacob left home, he ran for two days without stopping. Now, this is not literally possible. I mean, you have to just run and catch your breath and get a drink or something. But just as soon as he got his wind back, he'd run again. And at the end of the second day, he was just totally tired, 
dehydrated. It's kind of like running a marathon twice. You understand? Two days of this. So he's so desperately tired, he said, I cannot run any farther. So that's where we pick up the story. And it's Genesis chapter 28 and verse 11. When he came to a certain place and he stayed there all night because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Now you understand the stone is not a pillow. He's hiding behind it. It's a great big rock. And the most amazing thing is the Bible indicates, oh, by the way, let me ask you, how many of you think he prayed before he went to sleep that night? You think he prayed? I believe he did. I mean, I think he was taught to pray at home. And I think there was at least two things he prayed for because God came to him that night and answered two prayers. The first thing is he said, God, please don't let my brother find me sleeping. You know, he's just totally exhausted. And his brother was an outdoors person and could easily track him. Don't let me find, my brother find me sleeping. And the second one is, I want to come back to my homeland again someday. This is incredible. The Bible says, then he dreamed a dream. You can see it here. It's verse 12. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. There the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So it must have been a staircase. You can't go up and down a ladder at the same time. You understand? Stairs there. And then he says, behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Do you like Bible trivia? Let me tell you something interesting. He wanted to be Jacob's God too, but he introduced himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac. Later in this chapter, he says, he will be my God too. And from here on, everywhere in the Bible where God introduces himself to people, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As he did in the burning bush in, in Exodus, the third chapter to Moses. Who are you talking to a bush that's burning? It's almost as interesting as Balaam talking to his donkey. You know, it's just amazing how people, un, unusual stories. But I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So go on. He says, uh, the land on which you lie will give to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you, they're going to spread all over the world and so on. Then I'm going to bless you. And it's repeating the Abrahamic covenant again. Then I'll bring you back to this land in verse 15. But here's the interesting part. I use the New King James Version, and though I sometimes overuse the word awesome, it's actually in the Bible. And here it says in uh, verse 17, he was afraid and said, he woke up, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the very gate of heaven. So he rose up early in the morning. He took a stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on the top of it. And then he named the rock. You remember what he named it? Beth El which in Hebrew is house of God. Very, every time he ever came back here, he always had worship at that place because it was the house of God where he had this encounter. And then he made a vow. I mean, he's promising God. It's like talking to yourself. He's just standing there and he's made a vow to God. And he's, what is a vow, by the way? It's a promise or an agreement. So he's made a vow. He says, if God will be with me, or since God has already promised to do that, keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. See, he's going to be his God then. And the stone that you've given me shall be a pillar, as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So as a young adult conversion experience, he told God, count on me to be faithful. Remember, he had nothing. When he came back, he was a very wealthy man. 
Ellen White says in the book Council on Stewardship, he saved his tithe the whole time he was away. By the way, do you know how long he was gone? 20 years. 20 years is the right answer. He worked seven years for Rachel, was given Leah, worked seven more years, and then worked six years for Laban. 20 years he was gone. In the meantime, his mother died. He never saw her face again. According to the Bible, the Spirit of Prophecy, Ellen White says that she repented, but she never saw her son again. If you want something absolutely incredible, when Jacob died, he was in Egypt, but he had made his children swear they would take him back and bury him in the same grave where his mother is buried, and at the resurrection they will come out together. Awesome story. Really amazing. Uh, the, to me, the, the whole Bible is really, really fascinating. But the, here's the amazing thing. When Jacob came back home, he was so excited because God had appeared to him and said, Arise and go to Bethel. When he got back to where he could see the hills of home, chills shot up his back. My brother will kill me. And you remember he sent these huge herds of cattle ahead as gifts and so on. And when the guys came back from delivering them, what's your brother, I mean, what's he acting like? Well, he didn't seem too thrilled, and he has 400 people that are all armed for war. And here he's got this one guy with all of his kids, you know, and his livestock. What is he going to do? The amazing thing, you know, the night that God visited Jacob, Ellen White says he also visited Esau and said, don't touch that guy, he's my man. Isn't that amazing? Really interesting story. But listen, the old blind father, 20 years later, is still alive. God kept him alive so that Jacob would not be killed. And after the brothers made peace, then the father died shortly after that. They buried him together and made peace. Isn't that interesting? Amazing story. Well, there's much more I could tell you about that, but we have, we're going to get into something really, really interesting here. This is something you may never have looked at before. But the, there's, a, there's a correlation between tithe and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So you'll see it here. The tithing system is the equivalent to the last day Christian of the tree of knowledge of good and evil for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now you can see it on Councils on Stewardship 65. God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and he says, Of all the trees that you see, you may, what's the next words? Freely eat, except this one tree. Don't eat of that one. Ellen White says, in the same manner, God has placed man in the earth and says, of all the abundance of the earth, you may freely partake. All I ask from you is the tenth. Isn't that amazing? Now, I'm going to show you something really, really interesting. First, I want you to write down these two verses because they're the most significant tithing verses in the Bible. And notice I don't have Malachi 3 up there. This is the command to tithe, and this is what the tithe is to be used for. So we're going to look at it in Leviticus 27. And this one to me is really fascinating. Leviticus 27 is the last chapter in the book and verse 30, where it says, all the tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. The tithe is holy and belongs to God. That's what you learn from this, right? It doesn't belong to any person. It doesn't belong to any pastor. Do you understand? It belongs to God. Now, what could God do with the tithe if he wanted to? The way I, I really hate to use this illustration, but it's a crude illustration, but I want you to understand the significance of it. You won't ever forget this. Assume for a moment that this door opened right here and an 800-pound gorilla came in here. Where could he sit? 
the right answer anywhere he wanted to. If he came up and indicated by you that he wanted to sit where your chair is, you'd get up and leave. In fact, almost everybody would leave the room instantly. But God's not like that. So I told you it's very crude. But the fact is, since he is God and the tithe belongs to him, he could do whatever he wanted to with the tithe. Is it true? Could he take it back to heaven if he wanted to? Sure. Uh, another thing is when you were in the Old Testament and you sinned and you brought a lamb to the sanctuary, you cut its throat and the priest put some of the blood in the appropriate places. What happened to the rest of it? Got burned up. Burned up on the altar. So let's just say on Sabbath, after they sing the doxology and the elders have all come back up here and they're having the prayer, then somebody separates the tithe from the offerings. They put all the tithe in this little bowl. Somebody squirts some lighter fluid and just burns it up. Could God do that with his tithe if he wanted to? Yes. The answer is, though, God has told us what he wants to do with his tithe. And it's in Numbers 18.21. And if you look there, you find something very interesting. It's just the next uh, book over, 18.21. God says, Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. So God says, I want to support the preachers with my tithe. That's what he does. It's really interesting. So as a preacher, listen carefully now, it doesn't matter to me financially if every one of you stop tithing because God's going to be supporting me. Do you understand? If you stop tithing, all you would do is break your covenant relation with God and put you in line for all the curses of uh, Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 to 68. Is that true what I'm telling you? It is true. Okay, we're going to go on here. And I'm going to show you now something interesting. By the way, many years ago when I was a student at Loma Linda School of Public Health, I learned that it was uh, a very bad health habit to eat between meals. I took community nutrition class, and that's one of the first things we learned. It is not good to eat between meals. People who eat between meals, I still remember this, have more dental caries, more dental caries, more hypertension, more obesity, more heart disease, and so on. It's a proven fact. So I thought when Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that's where we still are here, that probably that was eating between meals, and that caused the problems for the whole world. <laughs> you understand? But it's not really that true, because I found this statement in the book Education, page 25. This is a direct quote from the Education, page 25. All I've added is these little parentheses here. There was nothing poisonous in the fruit itself, and the sin was not merely in yielding to appetite. So it's not between meals. It was distrust of God's goodness, disbelief of his word, and rejection of his authority that made our first parents transgressors, transgressors and brought into the world a knowledge of evil. So, I'm going to show you this. When we're faithful with our tithe, we show God that we trust His goodness, we believe His word, and we accept His authority. Isn't that incredible? Same deal that we saw from that other story. Now, tithing in the tree of knowledge of good and evil is followed by this, tithing in our covenant relationship with God. We're in covenant relation with Almighty God. That's the real incredible thing about it. So we're told, he who gave his only begotten son to die for you has made a covenant with you. What is a covenant? It's a promise or an agreement. He gives you his blessing, and in return, he requires you to bring him your tithes and offerings. So what comes first, the blessing or the tithe? Careful now. 
Yeah, it's kind of like chicken and egg. But you, all, you tithe blessings you've already received. So the blessings always come first. Isn't that true? You don't just tithe to get blessings. You tithe blessings God's already given you. And then more comes. So we're going to look at something here. Failure to tithe is robbery. You probably are not aware of how significant this is. Uh, most of you know that when you go to a professional school or professional degree, some of the stuff you take is just part of the curriculum. You don't actually intend to use it. But when I was in law school, I was required to take criminal law and criminal procedure, even though I was not planning to practice criminal law. It's just part of the curriculum, like at constitutional law and contracts and all those things. At any rate, I learned something interesting about the various levels of theft crimes. One of them is, if I were to drive by your place and you left your mountain bike out in the yard and I put it in my van and took it off, if I was arrested, what could I be charged with? Is it robbery? No. It's only theft. It's simple theft. Theft by conversion. Taking the property of another with no intention of returning it. And that's pretty serious, but it's not as serious. Let's just say that while you're gone, I break into your house and steal your laptop. What could I be charged with then? Okay, you guys are thinking breaking and entering and committing a theft inside. Putting the two together in most jurisdictions, it is burglary, classic burglary. Breaking there in the dwelling of another with the purpose of committing a felony inside. Now, this, this is really, really important. It's depending on the value of the item, I think. Let me just show you this. Our son Andrew is actually a practicing attorney in the state of Florida, and he does criminal law practice. If you are from Florida and you're convicted of breaking and entering the dwelling of another person, six years in jail, automatic, the judge cannot commute the sentence at all. So you understand how serious this is. Six years in jail. So this is pretty serious, but have you been robbed yet under the circumstances that I've described? No. Robbery only occurs when the owner is present. And this is very, very incredible. So I'm going to tell you now, just for sake of illustration, I have been robbed before. It is very, very unnerving, as you can imagine. And I'm going to tell you the story. It really, really happened. It's a true story. And you can tell by the details I tell you that it did happen. But I'm going to show you something amazing. And here's the story. When uh, I was in the, the executive secretary treasurer of ASI at the General Conference, most of you know about ASI. Well, when I was at ASI, we decided to take 16 ASI business people and their sons on a mission trip. So I was one of the 16. And so our son Andrew and I went with 15 other men and their sons. We went on a mission trip to Guatemala. And uh, we flew into Guatemala City, and we time we cleared customs and so on, it was like 11 o'clock at night. I thought, since I was only getting the people together, not planning the meeting, it was planned by Maranatha, but they never do this again. I'm just going to tell you, I really believe in Maranatha. They're in our will, even. So I'm just going to tell you, I really, but it just happened. It, it's a few years back. Many of you maybe have heard about it anyway. But instead of just that night going to a little church school or a church and sleeping in the basement like you do sometimes, they actually had rented a bus for us to drive, six-hour drive to Totonicapan, Guatemala. And in that, we, we were then going to be there the next day to start our work, you know, and sleep on the bus. I'm not a very good sleeper when, oh, by the way, let me tell you about the bus. The bus was kind of a lavender color with big purple polka dots all over it, and it said Turista on the side. 
which in Guatemalan Spanish is rich Americans, rob us. And that's exactly what happened. About three hours into the night, about 1.30 in the morning, I was awake. I always tell people I'm not a very good passenger. I really can't sleep very well when someone else is driving. I sleep better when I'm driving. But anyway, <laughs> I was awake and, and this pickup truck pulled out in front of our bus on the highway. This is a paved road, the Pan American Highway. A pickup truck pulled out, six men jumped out of the back and two guys jumped out of the front, all with guns. And they stopped right in front of our bus. It skidded to a stop. One of the guys had a rifle, and he used the rifle butt to break out the window in the door, which is, you know, has rubber molding around it, so it just broke out and fell in. They reached in and unlocked the doors. And I screamed to our other guys there, wake up, you guys, we got problems. Some people were so sleepy, they thought we were already at the job site, and they didn't know what was going on. But anyway, somebody jerked the bus driver off the seat and threw him on the floor and got in the seat and drove us off some down gravel road. It was just a, really a mess. So we were hijacked as well. But anyway, they systematically came down through the bus with guns at us and robbed us of everything valuable. All of our watches, all of our wallets, all of our passports, all of our airline tickets, everything. Anything that was valuable. When they came to me, I was maybe halfway back in the bus. Andrew was sitting beside me, our son, and I had this uh, shiny Timex watch. I had just bought it at Kmart for like $9. And I bought it because I knew I was going to be mixing mortar and laying blocks and stuff. And you know, you could, concrete will just ruin a watch. So. I left my good watch at home because it's a $15 watch. But anyway, <laughs> I bought this one. This guy came to me, and he, he started pulling at my watch. And I actually took two years of Spanish in high school. And I actually do believe that most of us will speak Spanish in heaven. I mean, I'm very, and I'm not just making, I think it's a wonderful language. But I forgot everything I'd ever learned about Spanish. And when he started pulling on my watch, it's still hooked on. I said, cheapo. That's what I said. I don't know if it meant anything to him, but one of our guys lost a Rolex. I mean, I'm serious about that. So I'm mean, not one of those knockoffs you see on the streets in New York City. This was a real genuine Rolex. At any rate, when he pulled on my watch, I said, cheapo. You know what that guy did? He had a 38 revolver. And he pulled the hammer back and stuck it right at my head. And he was so nervous, he was shaking. And I said, mercy, if this is a hair trigger, I'm dead. And uh, then I was nervous, too. And Andrew's sitting beside me and says, Daddy, give it to him. I did. My last valuable thing was gone. Fortunately, they finally got everything they thought was valuable, marched off into the woods, and left us sitting in the bus in the dark in the middle of the night in some place we didn't know. At least no one was killed or hurt. You understand? We were robbed. Now, the reason I'm telling you that story is the Bible says failure to tithe is robbery. It's the most serious of the theft crimes. It's very interesting, but I told you God has to be present. How could God be present? Isn't that amazing? Hebrews 4.13 says, you know, nothing, everything is naked and open before him before whom we must give an account. Where can I flee from his presence? I go to the top of a mountain to the depths of the sea. You understand. Okay, we're going to go on here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with all these because I want to show you something really interesting. But this is very interesting. He who embezzles his Lord's goods not only loses the talent lent him, but loses eternal life. I mean, you're hurting yourself. It's like cutting your nose off. You understand. Now, we're going to talk. I'm not going to read all of these. I'm going to tell you something interesting. If you guys were really serious, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to assume only for sake of illustration that you enjoyed my seminar today. And when you leave, you say, well, that was a good seminar. I guess I'm kind of glad I went to that one. At any rate, 
what's the worst thing you could hear about me in the future? Don't look at the screen. I'm just going to ask you, what is the worst thing you could hear about me in the future? Probably that I embezzled some money from the GC or ran off with my secretary or something goofy. You understand? But what does the Bible or Ellen White say? To defraud God is the greatest crime of which man can be guilty, and yet this sin is deep and widespread. So you see, if you hear in the review that I stopped tithing, then you know I've just gone over fool's hill. You understand? This is pretty serious stuff. Okay, well, there's another couple of things I want to show you. Tithing is an act of worship. Now we're going to have some fun. I'm going to show you that the texts you've always read about tithe are way more significant than you ever thought. So I'm going to show you that. We're going to look at the law of the central storehouse. You know that when the Israelites in the wilderness wandering, Kathy and I, my wife Kathy and I, read the Bible through out loud together every year. We didn't start but eight years ago, but this is the eighth year. We read it through out loud, and uh, we're actually behind two days right now, but we will finish it up tonight. We always catch up if we get behind. So at the, on the December 31, we're going to read Revelation you know, 20, 21, and 22. It's just the way it is. If you read the Bible through out loud every year, you wonder when you get through the New Testament, you're already in the 1st of October or the Old Testament, are you really going to have enough time to finish up? But the Old Testament is so much bigger than the New Testament. At any rate, when you read through the Old Testament, you saw all this organization. For example, when the sanctuary was set up, there's three tribes on the north and three tribes on the south and three on the east and three on the west. You know, that's the way they set their camp up. So it's no big deal for them to bring their tithes and offerings to the storehouse. It, wouldn't that be true? I mean, you, it's just a little couple blocks walk. But things would be very different once they occupied the promised land. Each tribe would then be given his own designated land, like from the Great Sea clear over to the river. You understand, huge portions of land they were given. And, uh, but they each had their own territory and their own cities. It's interesting also that even though the Levites were given 48 cities scattered throughout Canaan, including all six of the cities of refuge, remember there are three on each side of, Canaan, of the Jordan River, they were given those two, that God still required the tithe to be brought to the central storehouse. And most people have no clue this still happened. So people wonder, why does the tithe have to go up to the conference office and then come back to pay our pastor and all that? We're trying to follow the biblical model. Now, here's the thing I'm going to show you, really, really interesting. Just before Moses died, he gave, gathered Israel together and gave them three sermons or public presentations. They're recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy. The Bible, he states that even though they were to be settled and scattered all over Canaan, three times a year they were to assemble at the Lord's house for praise, for worship, and the delivery of their tithes and offerings. A lot of people have no idea this was practiced back in the Old Testament times. They thought, well, since the Levites have, you know, 48 cities all the place, you just go to the closest Levite and turn in your tithe. It didn't happen that way. Here it says, when you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which your Lord giveth you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which the Lord shall choose to call uh, as, by his name to dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings, and your choice vows which you vow unto the Lord. Now, I've got a whole bunch of stuff here, way more than I can tell you here, but the, they said, none shall appear before the Lord empty. Now, you understand that... Uh, every, I'm going to go real quickly through this, three times a year, every man in Israel will appear before the Lord. Ellen White said that the wives and children were encouraged also, but all the men had to go, period. And it's really interesting, and, and I'll, I'm just going to go real quickly uh, through these. Here, this one is a good summary one. 
Three times in the year shall all thy males appear before the Lord in the place which he shall choose. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which of course is Passover. In the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost. And the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Now this is very interesting stuff for a number of reasons. Next verse, every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord thy God which he has given thee. And there's amazing stuff in the Bible. Now you understand when you read through the Bible that there's always conquest of lands. And some guy just gets a bunch of land and someone else gets it. Our son Andrew, one of his majors in college was history. He says, Dad, you know what, what the Bible's all about? Or what history's all about? Who killed whom under what circumstances? It's just war after war after war after war. So if they're gone from their homes three times a year, and by the way, it took a whole month of their time to do that, who's going to take care of their land when they're gone? God said this amazing. For I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man desire thy land when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. Isn't that amazing? You come up there, nothing's going to happen to your stuff while you're gone. It's almost like God saying, you go to Soquel Camp and spend a whole week, don't worry about your house, I'll take care of it. <coughs> to me, it's amazing. It's right in the Bible. It to, it's very interesting. So I'm going to talk to you about the use of the tithe. We already saw this one. I've given the children of Levi all the tribes, all the uh, uh, tithes in Israel. But it's clear that God chosen his purpose for the tithe was to support religious leaders and their families. So in harmony with this biblical principle, the Adventist church has designated the local conference as the storehouse to which the tithe should be returned and which, from which the gospel ministers would receive their salaries. So thus the tithe is, uh, the tithe is returned through the local church where membership is held as part of the worship experience and the local treasurer sends the tithe to the conference storehouse from which the religious workers are paid. Now I'm going to do a little exercise just for fun. Here it is. We're going to look up three Bible verses and you're going to be able to see now how what I just showed you about the central storehouse is true and you never saw it before. What is the first word of Malachi 3.10? It's a verb, bring. Bring your tithe to the storehouse. Everyone in Israel knew where that was and when they should do it. Isn't that true? So, you know that one. Let's go to Psalm 116. Psalm 116. This one is going to be real interesting. Because there, David is speaking, and you like this because... Here it says in verse 12, 116 verse 12, What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? I'll take up the cup of salvation. I'll accept what he's done for me. Call in the name of the Lord. I'll pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all of his people. When are they going to be with all the people? Three times a year in Jerusalem. Now you can see it there. Look at verses 18 and 19. I'll pay my vows to the Lord, now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Now here comes the most fun one, and it's Psalm 122. I'm going to read this first part. And every time you go to camp meeting or church or you have some special dedication or something, someone always gets up and reads this and they say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Have you ever heard that before? Yes. Yeah, you ought to be excited about going to church. This is talking about taking your tithe to the storehouse. Mm -hmm. Here it says, let's go on. This is 122, 1 to 4. 
I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord to the testimony of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. If you read about this in Patriarchs and Prophets in the Old Testament, Ellen White says, this is really interesting. To me, it's amazing. That, you know, when your driveway is just a small little thing, then you live on your neighborhood street or whatever. But as people started going to the feast, they would come out of all these little roads in Israel, and then finally on the big roads, and they're marching along, singing the songs of Zion. They're thrilled. Isn't that amazing? And, you know, what always happened, when they went over the last hill right before they could see Jerusalem, when they saw it, the golden dome gleaming in the sun, everybody would give a big shout. Isn't that amazing? They're excited about this. It's not drudgery. It's, it's something they're really thrilled about. Okay, we're going to go on. But remember, when you hear those before, oh, I want to tell you something about this first. Is anybody here from the South? That is the Southern Union? Okay, a few of you. You understand what I'm going to tell you next. I was actually raised here in California, Northern California. I was born at Chico and lived at Paradise and up in that area. And uh, when our family moved back east to go to school, uh, what I had always been talked before is when you talk about more than one person, it's you guys. But back in the South, we used the expression, you all, right? So to show you how little I knew about the South, and some of you are, we're much more culturated now than we used to be, but when I went to Southern, uh, it's now Southern Adventist University, when I went there, my first breakfast, I went there and there were young ladies serving, college students, and they, uh, the, one of them said to me, would you like some grits? <laughs> I had never had grits before. It had always been oatmeal or, you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway, mother had always taught us, you know, don't refuse the thing. Just take a little bit. If you don't like it, you don't have to, you know, mix it with some bread or potatoes and you can get it down. <laughs> anyway, I said to her, well, I've never had them before, but I'll try one. That's what I said. She said, I don't think I can give you just one, but I'll give you a little small serving. Well, the whole point of this, they used y'all. So when I thought about Malachi, where he says, bring y'all the tithe into the storehouse, it actually says that in the Bible. This is the King James Version. Bring y'all the tithes into the storehouse. Doesn't it say that? I thought maybe he was from Alabama or Tennessee. By the way, I'm not disparaging the South. I'm going to tell you that I have been in every state in the United States, every province of Canada, and many countries around the world, and I believe that East Tennessee is one of the prettiest places in all of Earth. In fact, if time lasts and I retire, it will be there. If you want to see some beautiful pictures, come and see me after the seminar. I'll just show you. At any rate, New King James, it's not y'all bring the tithe, it's bring all the tithe. Some of the new versions, you may have some in your possession at this moment, says bring the whole tithe to the storehouse, not just part of it. You understand. Okay, not y'all bring, but bring all the tithe. So there's this blessing and cursing and revival, return and reformation. There's so many interesting things to learn about tithing in the Bible. Now, the reason I'm telling you this, it is not self-serving for me. I hope and pray that you will establish a covenant relationship with God and be faithful in your tithe. But even if you don't, I'm not going to miss a meal. It doesn't bother me a bit, except for your eternal life. Do you understand? I'm just telling you that. Okay. Now, God says, return to me and I'll return to you. And they said, what do you mean return to me? And he says, you've been separating yourself because you have not been faithful in your tithe and offerings. That's kind of important. Now, what is an honest tithe? Does anybody know? 
It has three elements. In English, they all begin with the letter P. I'll show them to you in just a second. Here's something amazing. Those churches who are the most systematic and liberal in sustaining the cause of God are the most prosperous spiritually. I believe that's true. Okay, we're going to look here. Uh, here's one interesting. Practical benevolence that is being helpful in God's cause will give spiritual life to thousands of nominal professors of the truth. What is a nominal professor of the truth? A Christian in name only. You know, if they were arrested for being a Christian, there probably wouldn't be enough evidence to convict them if it was dealing with tithe. You understand? Uh, but, it, but if you're faithful, it will transform you from a selfish, covetous worshiper of money to earnest, faithful co-workers with Christ in the salvation of sinners. That, to me, is really amazing. So here I believe we have, this is it. You want to jot these down. This is an honest or faithful tithe. It has three elements. In English, they all begin with the letter P. The first one is the portion or percent, which is very clear in the Bible is how much? One-tenth. One now, let me just tell you something interesting. Though I have written the book, It's Your Money, Isn't It?, and on the DVDs on 3ABN and all that, and I've been the primary editor and wrote most of this book, Faith and Finances, Kathy, my wife, is actually the money manager of our family. I'm really serious. If we write 1,000 checks a year, she'll write 999. I hardly even know how to fill one out. She's the manager. This is really important. Whoever's the best in your family should do it because you don't have his account and her account. If you're a Christian and you're married, you have your account, our account. Do you understand? Very simple. Uh, you, you would just not believe the kind of things I've run into counseling with people who have separate accounts and they fight over who's going to pay what, all that. Anyway, it's one-tenth. The reason I mentioned Kathy is because she said to me some time back, you know, the first check she always writes is which one? Do you guess it is? Tithe and offerings. And she said, you know, I know that if I had waited until last to write it, there would have been many months in the 40 years we've been married where there wouldn't have been enough money. God is awesome, my friends. It's just incredible. When we think back on our lives, we have two kids educated, you know, we're virtually debt-free and so on, and have planned for retirement and have been able to contribute huge amounts of money for our, from our perspective to God's cause. Uh, it's just really incredible. God has really blessed us. The second one is the place to return it, and the storehouse is the place. There are people telling you today in printed literature that circulated to Adventists, that the storehouse is wherever they're preaching the truth. Have you ever heard such things? It is not true according to the Bible. God says that he would establish an organization and a central place where the tithe is to be received. Now, by the way, you can do whatever you want to with your offerings, but the tithe is not discretionary. Even ministers can't use it however they want to. It belongs to God and should go to the storehouse. Pretty simple. Okay. The purpose is to support the ministry of God's church. Now, I'm going to just give you an illustration so you'll understand. A number of years ago, our family went on a Christmas break on a fly and build trip to the highlands of New Guinea. It was a wonderful experience for our kids. They were both in high school at the time and academy. And uh, Kathy and I and a bunch of our friends, we went and did that. It was really, really fun. By the way, both of our kids said after being there, and seeing that people entertained themselves, little children, with just funny stuff like rocks or pushing a little wheel around with a stick. You know, there's no toys at all. Uh, they said, we will never gripe about anything again, and they never have. It's just amazing. Take your kids on a mission trip if they are un unsatisfied with what they have. But at any rate, 
in New Guinea, they have a number of interesting things, and that is frequently in the highlands, the people do not actually have money, you know, like cash. So what do you think they do with, for their tithe? They bring yams. They bring potatoes and pineapples and bananas and so on. So what happens to it after that? Well, the deacons are supposed to take it to town and sell it and turn it into tithe to the conference. But if they don't get to it, some of the fruit actually can go bad. So what do the church members do? I'm going to stop tithing if that's the way they treat my money. No way. They say, if God wants part of his tithe to go into compost, it's fine with me. I've done my part. Do you understand? It's really simple. It's, it, once I've returned my tithe, that's all God's asked me to do. It's very important that you understand. The support of the ministry. Well, at any rate, when we were in New Guinea, much of the churches over there are only accessible by air. They have these airstrips carved out on the ridges of mountains and so on. There's no roads. I mean, if you go to Port Moresby, the capital city, the roads are only like 30 miles from there. That's as far as you can drive. But it's a big country. So the interesting thing is they have these airstrips. And I asked Roger Millis, the conference president at that time, where did you guys get these Cessna 206 airplanes? And he said, quiet hour in California. They saved that money and they, people sent in offerings and they bought these airplanes for us. So when I get back home, I'm going to start sending my tithe to the quiet hour. Right? No. But I can send them my offerings, do you understand, as much as I want to. That's discretionary with me. That's important. Okay. Now I'm going to show you something amazing. I found this because it was a, chap, a place in the Spirit of Prophecy that talks about attorneys. And when I went to law school, one of my friends in the church said, isn't it true that attorney and shyster are synonymous terms? How could you ever be an attorney and be a Christian at the same time? And I said, well, you know, some of the most famous of the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wycliffe, all trained in the law. This is important stuff to know. But anyway, I found this statement quite by accident. But here it is. Every, this is volume 4, page 469. Everyone is to be his own assessor and is left to give as he purposes in his heart. Now, his own assessor means it's between you and God for you to be honest. The local treasurer of your church is not going to ask you to submit a form 1040 so you can prove that you've done all your tithe properly. Isn't it true? It's between you and God. But notice, there are those who are guilty of the same sin as Ananias and Sapphira, who both dropped dead right in church for lying to God. Uh, thinking if they withhold a portion of what God claims in the tithing system, the brethren will never know it, and they probably won't. But thus thought the guilty couple whose example is given as a warning. Now, I'm telling you this. I've never shown this next slide in public, and I'm not going to show you either. But it says in 469, the next paragraph says, Though the judgment of God is not as swift today, they will receive the same reward in the judgment. Don't think you can rob God with impunity in your life here and think when he comes back, he's going to take you to heaven. It is not going to happen. I am not a legalist. I depend on 100% on what God did for me. I will tell you that for sure. But once I'm saved, God requires me to be faithful to him. You understand that? It's important. Okay. So we're going to just look at a couple of points here. And then maybe I should stop right here because I know some of you may have questions about tithing. It's very, it, some areas seem to be somewhat controversial. But I will just tell you, uh, would you like for me to answer the question about did Ellen White send any tithe to independent ministries? Well, here's the thing. There, there's only two places that you could come up with anything. And one is that Ellen White was a board member of only one school. Which one was that? 
Madison School. I actually graduated from Madison Academy. I lived there and worked at the dairy, and I know about Madison. My mother finished nurses training at Madison, so I mean, I was, I've been involved with that situation. But she was there when they took a farm, a dairy farm, and made it into a school. They built all the buildings there, including the sanitarium. Over and over again, Ellen White said, tithe money should not be used to build buildings, capital campaigns, if you understand that. But she said, not all means or money needs to pass through the regular channels. In other words, she was helping to fundraise to build buildings at Madison. She was not asking people to send their tithe there. It was to build the buildings of Madison. These were offering monies that she was appealing for. She says it in her same cell, in her own words, too. Now, another one is very interesting, though. Some of you may, yes, pardon me? Can, I get, can you get the reference? Yeah, actually, let me just tell you that I have the reference on our website. Uh, it's adventiststewardship.org. It's one big long word, adventiststewardship.org. And look under tithing, and they'll have all these documents that are up there. You'll be able to see them. One of, there's one of them, uh, the best one would be, uh, let's see. The Watson Letter in a Better Way. Now, if you're, unless you get really deep into it, you won't even know about the Watson Letter, but it's in there, and it'll tell you all about the Watson Letter in a Better Way. You'll be able to see it there. It's a good question. And by the way, I want to be able to be responsive, and I told you any question you ask, I can give you a reference or tell you where to find it. So here, here's, the, here's another one. When Ellen White went to Australia, anybody know when she went there? 1890. She was there in the last decade of the uh, 1800s. She was there for 10 years. Her son, Edson, whom obviously she dearly loved, left the church. He was out of the church. He was a backslider. And she wrote him regular letters about how she was praying for him and hoping that God would touch his heart and so on. He wrote her a letter and said, Mother, you'll be thrilled to know that I've been rebaptized, and I have this great idea that I'd like to build a boat and take it down the Mississippi River and work among the blacks near Yazoo City in Vicksburg, Mississippi, called the Morning Star. You know what she wrote back? Only God knows how happy I am. This is amazing. Then she said, do not separate yourself from your brethren. I think your idea is a good one. So he went to the General Conference and organized what is called the Southern Missionary Society. All of the leaders of the Southern Missionary Society were credentialed leaders from the Adventist Church with credentials from the General Conference. Then they went down there and began their work. In vision, Ellen White was shown that these people were not turning in sufficient tithe to support the workers there. And so she wrote to them and said, I understand from God that you're not paying the workers properly. And they wrote back and said, listen, most of the people that are our new converts have just come in from slavery. They have no assets at all. That was before we did the tithe sharing thing, like a mission. You know, we only have one mission, North American Division. It's a Newfoundland Labrador mission. We should have Hawaii mission and Alaska mission, but they're all independent conferences now. But we now share with missions, other conferences and so on. At any rate, we didn't have that in place. So they wrote back and said, but, you know, we, we can't help it. So she said to her secretary, send some of the tithe from my book royalty money to the Southern Missionary Society. It was not sent to an independent ministry, and it was not sent to an individual like G. Edward Reed. Do you understand? It was sent to one of the storehouses where workers were paid from. Now, then she was shown another time that they were short. And so, oh, by the way, that's when she sent her tithe. She first cleaned out all of her personal money and sent all of it. Then she used her tithe from the book royalty money. 
So here's the bottom line. If you are a prophet and God shows you in vision a certain need, don't send it to an individual. Don't send it, you know, to an independent ministry as good as they are. By the way, Ellen White says in Volume 9 of the Testimonies, independent ministry should be supported, but not from the tithe. You could not be more explicit than that at all. This is from Volume 9 of the Testimonies. It's on our website also. But I will just tell you something interesting. If God shows you a need, wipe out your personal finances first, then use your tithe, but always send it to another storehouse from which pastors are paid. That's the bottom line. And that is the truth about that subject. Okay? Somebody always ties, asks me, should we tithe on the gross or the net? Well, God asks us in the Old Testament, Proverbs, the third chapter, verse 9, the first fruits of your, all your increase. And in, in uh, Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and all of its righteousness. So you put God in first position. The late Larry Burkett was a, a man, man uh, evangelical speaker who wrote lots of books and had a radio program about money management. He died about three years ago. And he, when someone asked him that question on the air one time, he said, should I tithe on the gross or the net? Well, I guess I'd ask you, do you want a net blessing or a gross blessing? <laughs> and, and here's another interesting thing. If you have any question about whether you should tithe on something, you know God is love. God is also honest. God has all the good characteristics that you could think of. God is that. If you get him more than he deserves, he'll get it back to you some way. I really believe that. So that's important. Now, it is time for us to stop, isn't it? Anybody watching the clock? What I'm going to tell you is we're going to take a 15-minute break, aren't we? And then we have, I have another session. The next one is the most practical one all day. I'm going to talk to you about how to buy a car properly, how to buy a house properly, how to arrange your finances so that you aren't in debt your whole life. And I'm going to show you with an amortization schedule the whole business. So you will find it be very, very valuable. We're going to take a 15-minute break so I can get a drink, and you can stretch your legs, and then we'll start back. And by the way, those of you who have been here the next time after you're, you'll be here four times, if you were here all the time, you'll see Kathy at the back or somewhere, and she'll give you your book. Okay? Some of you may have to wait till tomorrow to get it. But at any rate, if you've been here four times, you get a free book. Okay. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.